Well, good morning, church. Well, you're wide awake and ready to vote, I'm sure. Yeah. Is it for Donald or Hill? No, we've got the wrong guy. Okay. I don't know about you, but are you enjoying the heat? I, I had the delight of spending almost all of my day in Black Canyon City yesterday with a deputy standing out in 113 degree heat, sweating like a, oh, it was awful. Anyways, <laughs> praise God, we at least arrested somebody. Okay. <laughs> How many of you had a face-to-face moment, a conversation that perhaps was sort of like a come to Jesus moment, you know, where you've had one of these what we call a crucial conversations where you've had to maybe confront somebody or you really had to sit down and have a heart to heart, you know, kind of those moments. Have they gone well for you? We're going to, we're going to get into finishing Esther this morning. And and the title of the sermon is called the crucial conversation. Um, I know for me, they're not easy and I would more or less like to avoid them sometimes. I don't know about you. Um, a friend of mine called me, a pastor friend of mine, I for some reason can't shed all the pastors that I've been spending time with over the last nine years. He called me the other day and he said, hey, I've got a real issue. I don't know what to do with it. And I said, what's going on? He said, the two couples that I'm closest to in the church, my best friends who I went to high school with, they're having an affair with each other. And I said to him, uh, so how is it going? He said, well, the one husband is shared with his wife, but the wife refuses to share with her husband. What do I do about that? He said, you're going to have to have a crucial conversation. So you're going to have to tell her. You're going to have to say either you tell your husband or I'm going to tell your husband. He said, oh, man, he said, I don't know if I can do that. And I said, no, Thomas, you've got to do that. That's the only thing you can do. And so he got up his nerve and courage, and he went and he called her, and he said, you need to tell your husband or I'm going to tell your husband. And she went ballistic. I mean, she climbed all over him and yelled at him and said, you know, stay out of my life. You're none of your business and all this kind of stuff. And poor Thomas, you know, he just really ate his lunch on that deal. Uh, But three days later, she came back and she had confessed to her husband and she apologized to him. And crucial conversations don't always go the way you'd like them to go. But we got to have them sometimes. And here's a situation as we get into the book of Esther and finish it up this morning, where she had to come to the king for the most crucial conversations on the planet at that particular time. So let's read about it. We're in Esther chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. So the king and Haman, oh, by the way, you remember where we left this off is that Esther was having a banquet, right? A second banquet to invite just Haman and King Xerxes too for her to make this request. And she had baited King Xerxes the day before and he was so interested in what her quest was. And so that's kind of where we're at right now. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, it seems like every time we read about the king, he's drinking. Have you noticed that? (laughs) Um, Drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. Well, what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Did he miss something? Didn't he sign the decree? Okay. 
So Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Well, we look at these six verses, and I see six things that we can glean from this as to her approach when it comes to a crucial conversation. I think we can learn a lot from Esther as to how she approached this particular situation. First of all, we need to know this. A crucial, all crucial conversations should be covered in prayer. You remember back a couple weeks ago, she asked the people of Israel to really pray and fast for her for three days while she prayed and fasted to be prepared for this crucial conversation. So prayer is always a prerequisite for crucial conversations. Secondly, when having a crucial conversation, all the right people need to be in the room. See, it was all about Haman and Xerxes. Those were the two components here that were a part of the problem and the solution. Sometimes we have those crucial conversations with the wrong people, where we really need to have the crucial conversation with those people who are a part of the problem or a part of the solution. And then we have these conversations sideways where we're really frustrated and we start speaking the truth about this and that. And it ends up being more gossip than anything. So it's critical to have the right people in the room when you have a crucial conversation. Here's the third thing that I see here. Crucial conversations should be conducted in a safe environment. What, what, what she was trying to do here, I think, is by having a banquet, it kind of set their nerves aside. It was kind of a, a happy occasion. They loved banquets. The King Xerxes, that's he thrived on it. There was a little alcohol involved to kind of settle things. There was, there was this kind of this environment that was created in this crucial conversation so that there was a sense of safety and neutrality. Fourth, it's critical to have some sort of relational equity. You see, Esther went at it, when you read about it in verse 3, if it pleases the king, if I found favor with you, king, I've, I've had this relationship with you for a period of time now, and I hope that, that I have a few chips to cash, if you will, in this relationship. It's really scary when you don't have those chips to cash. I was thinking about another pastor friend of mine who called me a few weeks ago, and, and he's only he's a young pastor. He's never been a lead pastor before, and he was in a church that is somewhat difficult, and he was making all kinds of changes and stepping on people's toes and becoming very demanding and, and directive, and, and, and it was getting really out of hand, and, and we went and kind of did an arbitration there with him, and I discovered that he was cashing all kinds of chips that he never had. I mean, he was, he was overdrawn, and consequently he got fired two Saturdays ago. So the point is, sometimes we, we try to have these conversations. We don't have the relationship strong enough where there's enough trust and equity of love and concern and compassion in order to have those conversations. So it's critical that we have relational equity. Here's the fifth thing. Share the facts without making accusations. See, what Esther did in her approach is she went to the king and she said, look, these are the facts. She's not accusing anybody at that point. She's just saying, look, there is a problem here. My people are going to be annihilated. And you've, and you've signed this decree. You've made this decree to have this happen. That's a fact. And sometimes what happens when we get into a crucial conversation, we're so emotional, we're so frustrated, we're so upset that we come at it more emotionally and subjectively rather than coming with the facts. It's critical to come with the facts. This is the way it is. We have that crucial conversation. This is how I feel. That's a fact, how I feel. It may not be a good feeling. It may not be a right feeling or rational feeling. But nonetheless, this is the way it is. These are the facts, and I'm going to bring them out on the table. So we see that in verse 4. But then, if necessary, sometimes we just plain need to be direct. And what she did is she said, basically, it's this vile Haman. He's the culprit. So she got very, very direct. But we also need to be careful when we're direct. 
There's an old saying that I think is very valid. It says, truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. So here was a situation where she spoke the truth, hopefully in the context of love, and just saying, look, this is the deal. This vile Haman is the culprit. This is the guy who did this. And sometimes what we do is we speak truth and we don't have it in the context of love. And consequently, it becomes very, very penetrating and very hard for people to handle. Or we can just come with so much love that we really don't get our point across. And it just becomes like a very hypocritical moment. So truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. Speak the truth in love. It's critical that that comes across in every crucial conversation. So that's up to verse 6 now. And now we can begin to see what the initial response was from the king. Let's read about it. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Bad idea, okay? The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face, which means he was already uh, uh, committed to uh, a death and, uh, and uh, to, to be uh, crucified or whatever. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king said, a gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. For who? <laughs> I love this story. He had it made for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king. The king said, well, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Well, what can we learn about people's responses when we have crucial conversations, at least from this scenario? Well, first of all, I think that every time there's a crucial conversation, there may be some blindness in taking responsibility. I mean, duh, what was the king thinking? I mean, he was a busy guy, obviously. He was uh, the king over 127 provinces. I mean, this guy had a lot on his plate. And so consequently, he probably had written a lot of edicts over his time as he was king. And yet, he didn't know who had created this monster of annihilating the Jews. So there was this blindness that the king had when when Esther approached. And so I think sometimes that happens in our own lives. When When we're going to have this crucial conversation, a lot of times it's because that person we're trying to confront or to deal with, there's a blind spot that they don't get. And it's sometimes really hard to break through. And so sometimes there's this blindness. I, I think about David, when, when, when David had committed adultery and murder, if you remember, and it took Nathan the prophet to come in and draw him this picture and to tell him this story to illustrate. And David almost comes unglued and says, well, I don't know who that guy is, but man, I, uh, he, he needs to be strung up, you know. And, and then Nathan says, well, you're the guy. Oh, you know, all of a sudden the light bulb goes on. And you hope that those crucial conversations, that that happens, but, but by and large, sometimes people are really blind to their own issues. And so we need to remember that. Secondly, the other thing I see in response is that there may be a strong emotional response. I mean, Haman was absolutely terrified and the king was furious. 
And I go back to my story about Thomas, where that woman who was having the fair, she was angry and she was frustrated and she was bitter and she was, she was hurting and she was under conviction. And so she railed on Thomas, her own pastor. And so sometimes you're going to get an emotional response from people. And that's really hard sometimes to swallow. So there may be strong emotional responses, just like what happened with Esther. Here's the third thought. Remember this, that sometimes what goes around comes around. And sometimes, you know, you look at Haman's life and you realize that that very gallows that he built for Mordecai ended up being the one that he was impaled on. I mean, it's amazing how it came back and bit him. And I think sometimes what happens to us too is when we go into a crucial conversation, maybe unprepared, unprayed up, and sometimes you go in thinking that we're going to make a point here in their life and it turns and turns ugly on your own life. Has it ever happened to you? Where all of a sudden you realize, oh man, I got issues. And so I, I see a little bit of that flavor in this particular story that sometimes what goes around comes around. So be careful in crucial conversations and make sure that you don't have any blind spots in your life. So that means it goes back again, praying up and making sure your heart is right when you make that approach, because sometimes it can bite you. Does this mean now that the conversation was over? No, when you read on here, you realize that the conversation had not yet been resolved. The request had not been resolved. Yes, there was a beginning of a dialogue. And sometimes what happens to us is when we get into crucial conversations, we get into a dialogue and we think, oh, good, we're talking. That's good. That's good. That's good. But we never come to a conclusion or we never come to a resolution. We never get to a win-win, if you will. Well, well, Esther wasn't going to stop there. It wasn't going to stop just with Haman. So she comes now finally with the absolute request. Okay, let's read about it in Esther 8, chapter 8, 1 through 11. Have we got it? Before I go there, I want you to just remember this, that one of the things that we have been told in our book, Crucial Conversations, we've been studying as a staff, is that there are four ways to find resolution. And those four ways are, are this. The first one is consensus. Now, your elders and, and, and your um, search committee had spent a lot of time praying about your candidate, Pastor Scott. And what they decided as a group is that we're going to come to a consensus decision, not a command decision. We're going to come to a consensus decision. So we all need to be on the same page. We all need to be together on that. And so they finally got consensus after hours of prayer that Scott was the guy. However, there was another resolution that we need to have, according to our Constitution, that the church needs to vote, right? So that's what you're going to do after the service. So voting is another way that you can bring resolution to something. We'd like to think that consensus is better because there's greater unity, but sometimes when there's a vote, there might be a three to two or, you know, what I'm saying is, so consensus is the best way, but sometimes that doesn't work. You just need to vote. Now, there's a third way. It's called command. So that happens oftentimes in a more military type of organization or a top-down type of organization like a CEO where bottom line is this was a command decision that Esther was asking for because the king was in control. And it wasn't about having consensus at all. It was about the king making a decree. So it was a command decision. And then the fourth way is that when you can't come up with any kind of real solution within that crucial conversation, you may need to bring in a consultant. 
And so there is that consultant who kind of helps bring some closure to it. That's what I did for nine years, and it doesn't do any good anyways. But anyways, there's a, a consultant type of thing, okay? So those are the four ways that we resolve that. So now let's go back and uh, go to Esther 8, chapter 1 through 11. Thanks for whoever's running the computer. You were smarter than me at this one. Okay, let's go to Esther 8, verses 1 through 11. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman. The enemy of the Jews and Mordecai came into the presence of the king for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman and presented it to Mordecai and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. What a twist of fate. Actually, I call it a twist of faith. Okay. Third, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, do you see all of the elements of a crucial conversation again coming up? Let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Ooh, that got even close, right? And then King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month of the month of Sivan. They wrote all, out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews. Isn't this great? Mordecai now writes the edict. This is amazing. And to the satraps, governors, and the nobles, the 127th provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders are written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with a king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, which I'm assuming are Morgan horses, because that's what I think are the best, especially bred for the king, okay? The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children. And to plunder the property of their enemies. If you read on in the rest of the book of Esther, you realize that the Jews did that. And they actually killed probably over 75,000 people who tried to attack them. And as they, but they did not plunder their property, which is really a cool thing. They were uh, uh, not obeying that particular edict. But I, I just want you to catch this now. Here's the request. And what I think is important here for us to realize, when having a crucial conversation, never lose sight of the ultimate goal. See, if Esther would have stopped with Haman being hung on the gallows, that wasn't enough. And sometimes what happens when we get into a crucial conversation, we get into all of the details and all of that, kind of the forest through the trees, we forget that there is a ultimate purpose for this conversation. Where do we want to go with this? What is the point that we're trying to make? What is the, app, the, the uh, solution? What, what are we trying to get to together here to really make this thing work? And so what she did is she finally gets to that ultimate goal by saying, look, what we need to have happen here is that there needs to be a new request. There needs to be a a new edict from the king. That was what she was looking for. 
So I think that's really important to keep that in mind because sometimes we start getting into these dialogues and we almost forget about why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? And then secondly, we need to remember that the goal of a crucial conversation is about the common good. You know, it could have, she could have stopped there and thought, oh, hey, we're cool, man. Uh, Mordecai's got Haman's estate. Mordecai's got power now. Mordecai's got authority. It could stop right there. Wait a minute, time out. What was the real, what was the ultimate goal? To protect all the people. And in doing so, what she did is she, she created a situation where people were really empowered to protect themselves, which was a great solution. And that's the fifth, third thing that I want to bring up is that we need to find creative solutions. She knew, as what we read, that the king could not revoke an edict. That was the law of the Medes and the Persians, and there was no way to revoke that. But what she did do is she said, let's make a new edict, at least giving the people of the Jews to to be able to defend themselves. Can we do that? And so the king said, yeah, we can do that. And so a new edict was written so that the Jews could actually defend themselves. So I love the creative solution that she brings to the table, knowing what she was up against with the law of the Medes and Persians. So we need to come up with creative solutions in order to find common ground for the common good. That's what a crucial conversation needs to happen. So I want to just kind of close this whole study of the book of Esther by some things that, for me, were really powerful truths as I read through it, and hopefully you've picked them up along the journey. Here's the first thought that I had as I think about that. Not all crucial conversations end well. Let's face it. You know, not all of them work like Esther did. God was definitely at work behind the scenes here, and it really went superbly well. I mean, it was mind-boggling how God had orchestrated all of that. But I don't know about you, but I've had crucial conversations where I've gone in with great humility and prayer and and had a conversation with somebody like that where there was a come-to-Jesus moment, and it didn't work well at all. Does that mean it was a waste of time, or does that mean that God wasn't in it? I I don't believe that. Because sometimes what I think in a crucial conversation, what God really wants is our courage and our conviction to really come through. And and I remember a particular conversation that I had with my dad many, many years ago where my dad didn't get it. I mean, he had too many blind spots for the conversation I tried to have. But you know what? I felt like God had at least created this situation in my life to where I could at least express how I was feeling and to be able to have that conversation. And I went away feeling much better knowing that I did what God had called me to do, even though the responses wasn't what I was wanting. So let's not forget about that. Not all commercial conversations end well because we try as hard as we can, according to Scripture, that we are to be at peace with all men. And sometimes it says it's not possible. So let's not kid ourselves that sometimes crucial conversations don't end very well. Here's the second thought I had. The crucial conversations that go bad are often with those who we love the most. Have you noticed that? The people that you're around day in and day out, the the family members, the people that we work alongside with every day. You know why? Because we take those people often for granted. And because we're there so often, a lot of spontaneity happens in those conversations, right? And they're often happening during times of, of, of irritation and fatigue. And all those conversations happen and boom, instead of being prayed up, instead of having a safe place or a safe environment, having a place of neutrality, we just expect 
explode and those crucial conversations go really bad with the people that we love and take for granted the most. Amen? I mean, that happens a lot. And so consequently, one of the things that I try to encourage married couples or families to do is to have a, a summit to where they can have a place or time and place during the week where they can have what I would call an opportunity to have those crucial conversations where all we set aside a time where there's a neutral time and a neutral place and everybody gets a chance to share what's on their hearts and it's done in a way that's godly and, and objective and, and affirming. And it's just a great way to be able to do that because we oftentimes allow ourselves too much freedom in those crucial conversations with people who we love and they can be very destructive. Here's the third thing that I picked up as I've listened and studied this whole thing with Esther is that the courage of one person's influence can have a powerful impact on many lives. We heard Pastor Scott talk last week about the resurrection stories in our lives and how those resurrection stories can have a powerful impact on not just one person, but many people. And I look at Esther's life and I see this woman who was taken out of, of maybe abject poverty as a, as a Jewish woman or young lady who, who really had no prestige or power or influence whatsoever. And God raised her up at a time like that in the history of the Jewish people was just an amazing thing. And it just reminded me again, remember we had that message on the power of one? And sometimes I think we underestimate how God wants to use us. And I trust that this story has inspired you to feel like, you know what? God can use me and and I I have resurrection stories to tell and God can use me in the life of other people and and stop putting yourself down and realizing that God can have a plan for you and can use you just like he used Esther. Here's the fourth thought. I think sometimes the darkest moments in our lives are preparation for the dawning of a new day. You know what? When you look back at this story and you remember how Mordecai was absolutely beside himself in sackcloth and ashes. Oh God, what's happening? Here I don't bow down to this creep. And God, you come along and what happens? He's going to annihilate all the people because I did. Oh, this is the worst thing on planet. Can you imagine what he was going through? It's probably one of the darkest moments in Mordecai's life, but it was right at the very cusp of of a cusp, cuspid, (laughs) that's a tooth, right? (laughs) It was right on the cusp of the greatest moment in the history of the Jewish nation. And sometimes I think what happens to us is that we, we don't want these dark moments. We don't want these valleys in our life. But though, you know, scripture has always said, or people have always said that, you know, things don't grow on the mountaintop, they grow in the valleys, and some of you some of you are probably faced with some things in your life right now that are maybe some dark moments or frustrating moments or deep moments. And you're saying, oh, God, where are you in all of this? And what he's saying is he said, look, you remember what Pastor Scott said last week? God didn't come to make bad people good. He made dead people alive. You know, and I think there's some value here as we think about this. That when sometimes we need to die to ourselves and to have a death before there's a resurrection. And so I think this is really a great truth that we need to glean from this. So if you're going through a dark moment right now, believe that maybe you're on the very edge of what God really wants to do in your life. Something very, very exciting. Here's the fifth thing. Ultimately, God does not let his people down. He loved the Jewish people. They were his chosen people. And consequently, in this particular scenario, as bad as it was, 
He took care of his people. And friend, if you know Jesus this morning, you're his people, right? And, and sometimes we, we get the feeling that, that God has forgotten us. But ultimately, we're never a victim if we're his kid, right? Because he's got a plan for every one of us. And ultimately, he's not going to let you down. He has a plan for your life, and he's going to see that that plan happens in your life because he's a sovereign God, and someday it's going to be complete, and we're going to stand before Jesus face to face, and we're going to be just like him. Ultimately, God does not let his people down. And here's the last thing, and it probably won't surprise you. God is always at work, what? Behind the scenes. God is always at work behind the scenes. So let me ask you a question this morning based upon the big idea, and that is, is there a crucial conversation that you need to have with somebody? Is there there a come-to-Jesus moment you've needed to have with a son or a daughter or a husband or a wife or somebody at work, somebody you know, and and it's been nagging at you and you've been kind of holding back and you've been feeling like, oh man, I don't know, Um, do I have enough relational equity or whatever, but maybe this is the morning where God is saying to some of you, you know what, you got to get off the dime. You got to be courageous. Pray it up and go for it. Take that step. That was really hard for my friend Thomas because he's a lover and he's not, and nobody likes confrontation. But God ultimately blessed it because he was courageous enough to confront this lady. And sometimes I think we put those conversations off because we just are afraid. We have a fear. But if God's prompting you this morning, I want to encourage you to take that step and see where God takes it. Because you know what Esther's life was, 2020 hindsight. It was pretty cool what God did in her life. Amen. But it could be pretty cool what he wants to do in your life too. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we bring this book of Esther to a close this morning. And oh Lord, I know I need to learn that you're always at work behind the scenes. And so, God, I pray that every one of us would have that reality stuck in their heart and mind after this series that we've been through. But this morning, Lord, I pray for that person who is feeling a bit convicted. The person that maybe feels like, you know, it's been a while. I need to talk to my dad. I need to have that conversation with my mom. I need to have that moment with my son or my daughter. I need to have that chat with my boss. And I've been waiting and rationalizing and wondering. But God, I pray that if that's the push, like Mordecai needed to push Esther, that maybe God this morning, you're Give them a little bit of a shove. And if you're that person this morning, I'd encourage you if you want some prayer because all crucial conversations need to be started with prayer. There's some great folks up here in front that would love to pray with you about that.
So Father, I thank you for this great book where your name is never mentioned, but you're written all over every page. And God, I pray that that would be the same in our own lives. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.